after with Build is we, we want to try to gather the men of the church and um, any men of the church who, who make Grace Bible Church their home and who uh, profess Christ as their Lord and Savior. We want those men here because what we want to do is we want to gather them together and try to unite them around what the elders believe are key, significant, biblical leadership, spiritual disciplines. This is what we think the Bible says about what it means to be a man of God, what it means to be a, a leader in the church and a leader in your home. And so we don't want a pocket of men in the church over here trying to figure out what they think it means to be a godly man and another group of guys over here trying to figure out what it means. We want to all be together. We want to all talk about this from God's word. We're going to really steep ourselves in God's word to figure these things out. And we want to all be united about it. So that when we then go and scatter into our homes or when we go scatter into our ministries that we serve in and lead in, we're all thinking the same thing about what it means to be a godly man, what it means to be a leader, because that makes a church strong. My experience in the past has been that as I've been a pastor in, different, in a little subset ministry of, of a bigger church, that every ministry is pretty much left to itself to train its own leaders and figure out what biblical leadership looks like and and to, to mentor and shepherd its own people. And that's great as long as the people who are in leadership of the church are all thinking on the same page. But if they're not, every group kind of has its own different thing that it does. And you move from one ministry to another in a church and you kind of get this feeling of, well, that, that's not like what I saw over there. There's a different emphasis here than there was there. And we just thought at Grace, uh, at the stage we were as a church, that the thing that we really wanted to do was we wanted to eliminate that, if possible, by just saying, look, men, this is what the Bible says about what a godly man is. Uh, this is what biblical leadership looks like. This is what gospel ministry looks like. Let's all call ourselves to it, gather around it, rally around it, unite together around God's word and the gospel, and then let's go scatter into the ministries. And all of our ministries will be united because they're they're, they're led by and they're filled with men who are thinking the same thing about God's word, about the gospel, about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a godly man, what it means to lead our homes and our household relationships well. That's what we were after. We just want this thing all marching at the same step, um, this thing called church, called Grace Bible Church. So here you are, called out from the church, uniting you around the biblical leadership disciplines because we want the church to be strong. Um, the primary tool that God is working through in this world today is the local church. And uh, we need to make sure that our local church is functioning as strongly, as, as efficiently, as, as it needs to be as aligned with the gospel as it can be. And that's what we're trying to accomplish here. To do that, we're calling you around these basically these six disciplines. Do you see them there? Discipline one is the heart. We're going to call you to pay attention to your heart and to the hearts of those in your household, the hearts of those in the church and, and uh, that you fellowship with, and strangers and people outside the church that you come into contact with. The ministry leader in Grace Bible Church must prayerfully shepherd his heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. Your whole, the, the whole thing that we're after here, foundationally speaking, is you need to be a man who understands that when you open God's word, the thing that needs to happen most of all is your heart needs to meet with God. You are not opening the Bible to get facts, merely. 
You are not merely opening the Bible to win an argument. You're not merely opening the Bible to check off a box because you know small groups are going to ask you. You, as a man of God, you must meet with God. And guess what? He has revealed himself. And he has revealed himself most clearly right here. And this book is not an instruction manual for living, merely. Oh, it has all kinds of instructions for us. But it's not a it's not a Blu-ray manual on how to when something goes wrong you turn to it and you figure out what you did wrong and so you know what to do right. This is a book. This is a letter from God to you. You cannot see Him with the eyes in your head. This is the best you can have of your God right now. This is not God. The Bible is not God. God is God, and this is His letter. And this is the best you can have of him. And if you don't have this, you are going to wither up and die as a man. Why? Because your heart needs God. And so you must... The difference between Joe Blow in the pew and and a leader in the church is that the leader understands this. And he wants this. He wants God in his word. And he brings his heart to this Um, to this book whenever possible. So that's the foundation. I tell you what, you become a man of that kind of character and that kind of conviction, and it doesn't matter what you place after yourself in life, you have a chance to be pleasing to God. You have a chance to be uh, an effective man for God in this world. Uh, It doesn't matter where you go. If God throws you into prison and you're locked up for the rest of your life, you... There's, there are, there's huge potential. You miss this. You play leapfrog over your heart and run to other things. I don't care what you set up in your life after that. I don't care how good it is. I don't care what positions you get. You are an empty man. You're a hollow man. You understand? This is foundational. This is everything. Everything gets built off of that, which then leads to discipline. Two, the home. The first place that you need to make an impact with your heart for God in his word is the place you live. It's the place you live. The ministry leader in Grace Bible Church prioritizes shepherding his household with his heart for God and the gospel. Wherever you live, that heart for God in the word of God needs to just come off of you like an aroma so that when somebody steps into your house, what they smell is that this is a man who's after God. That needs to make an impact um, on people. And and it doesn't matter if you're married and you have kids. It doesn't matter if you're uh, single and you live with a bunch of other knucklehead roommates like yourself. It doesn't matter. Wherever you live, this is just what comes off of you. This is the kind of man you are. You are making an impact on the people that you live with. I know a guy in our church who lives by himself. He's a single guy who lives by himself. But you know what he does in regards to discipline too? He doesn't think, you know what, this one doesn't apply to me. So I don't have to worry about it. What he does is he has people in his house all of the time. He cooks for them, and he wines, and he dines them, and they come, and they just enjoy him. And the, the conversation is spiritual. It's about God. It's about, it's about Jesus Christ and what he's doing. I mean, he is using his household to make an impact for the gospel because that's who he is. Um, it's the kind of man that he is. Which then flows and makes ready for the third discipline, the ministry, with a heart for God and the gospel. 
and a household following his lead. Number two, the ministry leader in the Grace Bible Church steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. When you step into the lives of other men and women in the church and families and kids, whoever you're ministering to, this is what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm concerned about their hearts. I'm concerned about what they're doing. I'm concerned about what he's doing with his heart. What are you doing with your heart? And especially, what are you doing with your heart in God's word? What goes on with your heart when you're in God's word? And, and what's life like at home? This is, by the way, if you want to know how to minister to people in Grace Bible Church, you think discipline one, two, and three. Talk to me about your heart. How's it going with God's word at your heart level? What's a, how are your relationships at home going? You see, this is how we shepherd one another in the body. This is what you talk about when you're meeting with one another and you care for one another about these things. And you talk about the ministry. What's going on? What's going on? How's your ministry in the church going? How's your ministry outside the church going? Etc. You are ready now to step out into the lives of people. These first three uh, disciplines are not strictly sequential, meaning that... Um, uh, you can never go to discipline two until you graduate from discipline one. You will never graduate from discipline one. And you don't wait to go into ministry and, and you know, stepping into people's lives in the church and serving until you've you know, graduated from taking care of your household. You'll never graduate from taking care of your household. But these are prioritized. They are priorities. If you don't do number one, number two, your house is in big trouble, guys. Your house is in big trouble. And if you don't do number two, your ministry to people is in big trouble. And we see this in the church all the time, don't we? Guys who show some type of zeal or giftedness or skill and, and the, the church puts them into ministry leadership and they start leading a ministry, leading a ministry, and, and there wasn't really a, a careful watching of his life in his household. And then the next thing you know, his marriage blows up or his, his kids hate him and they don't even want to be around him and... And now his whole ministry, people are scratching their heads saying, well, what's that when his house is like that? And um, See, these things are prioritized, and they have to be there, and, and you never graduate from them, but um, you'll be working on them simultaneously, but I'll tell you, you better put a priority on your heart, and then the home, and then ministry. Discipline four is we want to constantly put qualifications in front of you. The ministry leader in Grace Bible Church prayerfully pursues the qualifications for deacon and elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. In particular for BUILD, we really put deacon qualifications in front of you. Um, we'll spend some time later on in the year. You'll see here in a minute when we look at the calendar. Uh, we'll just go through the deacon qualifications so you can be aiming your life at a qualified life. Um, it would be our desire that every man in the church would either be qualified to be able to serve as a deacon or as an elder. Um, I can't think of a reason why God wouldn't want a man who loves Christ to not be qualified. Um, God is sovereign and he does what he does with each man and, and, and it is, each man is what each man is. Um, not every man will be that, but we want to point and direct every man to the qualifications list and say, prayerfully strive for them. Um, yes? Yeah, primarily one, and it's in regards to function. Not in regards to character, but in regards to function. And that is an elder is shepherding with God's word in a way that requires him to be able to teach. And that one is not in the deacon list. But um, uh, that's the primary difference. And it's not that uh, 
deacons never use God's word in their serving in the church. If you, uh, when we get to Acts chapter 6 and we, we look at the, the prototype deacons of the early church in Jerusalem, you'll see that um, Stephen had no problem handling the word of God. You'll see that Philip had no trouble handling the word of God. In fact, by the end of Acts, he's not Philip the servant anymore. He's Philip the evangelist. Okay, so these guys knew God's word. They could handle God's word. They were effective in using God's word as they served. Um, so, but that's not required of them like it is required of an elder to shepherd with God's word. So that's the primary difference. But character qualifications are very similar. Very similar. Uh, the leap from character qualification from deacon to elder is not much of a leap at all. It's just a step, really. Um, discipline five, if you've been in build before, um, we've, I'm changing it this year because of the way things have kind of gone over the last few years. Um, discipline five in the past was kind of this catch-all theological category that we never really used very clearly. Um, and what I ended up doing over the last few years of build is spending more time just talking about how do we handle God's word um, which is um, hermeneutics is a part of that. Hermeneutics is uh, the rules that you use to interpret the Bible. And so we're going to talk about the hermeneutic that we think a man should use. And this is what Grace Bible Church thinks about how the word of God should be handled. We want to expose you to that. So the ministry leader in Grace Bible Church carefully interprets God's word to discover what God meant by what God said in his word. You start first by just observing what did God say. In this passage to those readers, what was the author's – uh, what, what did he say? And then once you know what he said, you start thinking about, okay, now what does that mean? Okay? And we'll talk about that more as we go along. And then Discipline 6 is specifically tied to this church. Uh, we're not preparing you to go serve at another church down the street. We're preparing you to serve in this church. And so if you're going to serve in this church and be a part of this church, you need to know what the vision and the purpose of this church is. And so the ministry leader in Grace Bible Church embraces our biblical vision and gospel purpose. And those two things are the biblical vision is the glory of God, the cross of Christ, and life transformation by the Spirit. And uh, the gospel purpose is to draw in, to build up, and to send out. You need to understand what we mean by that so that as a man of God here in this church, you can function in line with that and help promote that and encourage others to participate in that in this body. So... Every Saturday that we get together, I will walk through that with you. Not as long as I just did, but we're going to walk through this because I want you, when your wife bumps you in the middle of the night and you wake up, I want you to be able to just blurt these out um, because that means that we understand them, we know them, we've lived them, we're, we're, we're growing in them. Okay. Um, take a look at, uh, just go ahead and open your notebook up and you'll see first <coughs> the schedule. We meet basically about every other Saturday, um, two Saturdays a month, and we're going to meet through May. And this will show you how we basically uh, break down the disciplines. You'll see that um, at the beginning, we are going to focus heavily on the heart for the first three times together. And then we're going to focus on the home the next three times together. And by the time we uh, break for Christmas, we'll, we'll then just start talking about the ministry. The way that we used to do this when, I, when we first started is, is I took uh, at every Saturday and I did Discipline 1 and then I did Discipline 2. I taught both of them, uh, the two lessons in Bill. The next time we got together, I did Discipline 3 and Discipline 4. 
And then the next time we got together, I did discipline five and discipline six. And then when the next time we got together, I started over to discipline one and discipline two. And as we, I was trying to give them all equal weight. Um, and all of them are very important. But what we noticed that first year in doing it was that as, as much as we tried to get to three and four and then five and six, we had guys that were still back up. Um, I, my, I need some help in my home. I'm, I want to grow and be the kind of guy. So we kept coming back to discipline two and discipline one. And so we just realized that what we need to do is we need to front load and, and weight heavily disciplines one and two primarily. And so that's what we're just going to spend the whole first semester here primarily on. We'll then jump into discipline four in, in January with the qualifications. We'll come back to the heart um, and deal with that again. And then come back to the home again and deal with that. Talk about the vision and purpose of the gospel uh, here at um, Grace Bible Church. And then end with three on the hermeneutic. Uh, that we'll spend. That preps you, gets you, I hope, excited at that point to consider H3, uh, which is our next layer of leadership development that SMED teaches and runs, which is primarily going to really equip you to use God's word uh, and expose you to the theology more so of the elders of the church. And um, yeah, if you want to, uh, I, I don't want to put a carrot in front of you. I don't want to put a hoop in front of you to jump. I want you to be just faithful to what you're doing here. But if you want, if you think that, you know, yeah, what I'd really like to be in this church is I'd like to be trained, and, and not just this year, but I, I want to be trained. I want to be developed. I want to grow as a man. Then I encourage you, do, do this well. Do build well. Be here every Saturday. If you have homework, do your homework. Uh, do it well. Turn it in because this is every other Saturday. And the homework level that you'll get here is, is this. But it's important what you get. And um, if you don't do that well, but you want to be an H3, that means every week. Twice. Twice a week? No. Yeah. Well, there's, yeah, there's, there's, for two different groups of, of people. But especially doing it once, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was the Herb Nukes class. That still in, like ran a, a rut in your brain, didn't it? <laughs> it ran over you. <laughs> and then it backed over you. <laughs> I remember that. I was there. <laughs> yeah. Smed <laughs> was. Smed was driving the truck. I was just saying, yeah, you got it. <laughs> Get him again. <laughs> um, so anyway, H3 meets every week, and the homework load for that is, is much higher. And so be faithful in the little things here, and then you'll be ready for uh, the bigger things that come after that, okay? All right. And if you have any questions along the way, feel free to ask. Take a look at your first tab on the heart. Turn the page. You'll see Discipline 1, The Heart. Um, this is just a resource for you. Um, what I did years ago when we were getting ready to start this, I thought, you know, what, what do I use to train and, and what, what, do we, what do we want to use to set before the guys to think about their hearts rightly? And, of course, the only answer was, well, what does God's word say about the heart? And so what I did is I just read through the Bible on the heart and I just tried to kind of categorize them, put them in, put these different verses and passages in categories, and you'll see them there. Um, and this is where your lessons come from uh, in regards to the heart. 
If you'll go past that uh, discipline one, the heart, don't go to the next section in your, not the next tab, but you'll see D1, the heart. Uh, it's kind of in a more bold font, and it says the 856 occurrences of heart in the New American Standard. Do you see that? A few pages back in that first section. It looks like this. Keep going a few pages. One more, there you go. Okay. I want you to just think about this with me. What is, somebody tell me what your favorite book in the Bible is. Job. Very good. Job deals with the heart 20 times. It's good. 20. Okay. Somebody else give me your favorite book in the Bible. Hebrews, I heard. And then Philippians. Okay, Hebrews. Hebrews 11 times. That's, well, I both of you guys, 31 times. Okay. And then Philippians. Uh, whoops, sorry. Philippians doesn't use the word heart. So it's not a very important book in the Bible. <laughs> so 31. Let's do uh, another favorite book in the Bible. Ecclesiastes. Okay, very good. And Ecclesiastes deals with the heart 17 times. Good. 31. That's up to 48. Let's do one more. Uh, but don't look at the list and pick that way. I'm talking about your favorite book in the Bible. 48. Romans? Romans. Somebody always has to say Romans. 15 times, so 48 and 15, that's 63. Very good. Now, what I've found over the years is that when you ask people, well, what are you reading in the Bible? They kind of have their favorite books in the Bible, and they just kind of keep cycling through the same books in the Bible that they read. And so over a course of uh, you know many years, what you find is you primarily read through those same books over and over and over. You might venture outside and, and read something else. But if you primarily stick with the five favorite books that you read, you're going to expose yourself to what God says about the heart. In this case, that we just picked 68, 63 times, right? That's a lot. That's, that's more than I've, I've seen most picked. A lot of times it only adds up to about 30. But what I want you to see is that if you don't read other books of the Bible and you don't read through the Bible as a whole, look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy itself mentions the heart 45 times. If you never read Deuteronomy, you're not going to let God address you about your heart. 45 times. 1 Kings. 30 times. 2 Chronicles, 31 times. If you don't read these books, you're not letting God address you about the heart, about the condition of your own heart. Psalms, 126 times. Proverbs, 69 times. Jeremiah, 48 times he mentions the heart. When was the last time he read Jeremiah? Okay, so... The Old Testament is loaded with books that um, want to address the heart, that God will address your heart with if you read them. Okay. With that being said, behind that, if you'll turn a page, you'll see a 52-week Bible reading plan. What I have listed for you here are several different Bible reading plans, three of them, I should say. You have a 52-week Bible reading plan. This is a unique one I offer it to you to consider. Uh, what you do is on Sunday, you read the epistles. On Monday, you read the law or the Pentateuch. On Tuesday, the history section of the Old Testament. On Wednesdays, the Psalms. Thursday, you read the poetry sections. Friday, you read prophecy. And Saturday, you read the Gospels. That's, that will take you through the Bible um, in a year if you read that way. Uh, that's a pretty unique kind of Bible reading plan. 
If you turn uh, the page, you'll get the chronological reading plan. Uh, if you'll notice, it starts in October with Genesis, and the reason for that is because of build starting where it is. And if you haven't picked a, if you're not on a Bible reading plan, you can start in October and you'll hit Genesis rather than whatever it would normally be ten months later. And then um, the the next one at the back after that is McShane's Bible reading plan. Eric, does this look familiar? Oh, you don't have it in front of you, but we, Eric is the one that made these into little cards, and uh, I use them as, I, you, you cut them out and you can just keep them in your Bible and, and, and keep track of your reading. McShane is a, is a, is a great, great, um, I think he was Scottish, makes sense, but it's McShane, um, who constructed a Bible reading plan that will put you in four different passages a day. And the overlap and the, the continuity that you'll get as you read in those four chapters a day is, is sometimes scary. If there is anything that is nearly inspired outside the Bible, it might be this Bible reading plan, in my opinion. Because um, <clears throat> it, is, it is really amazing. And that leads to your main primary assignment in build. Your main primary assignment in build is I want you to be, the elders want you to be on a Bible reading plan that will take you through the Bible in a year. Now, um, and I encourage it, don't just do that for this year. You do this every year. This needs to be what you are as a man of God. You read the Bible. Is that shocking? I hope not. As a man of God, you just read the Bible. That's what you do. And you have a plan, you're intentional, and you're reading through it every year. Now, I know you might say, yeah, but I've got, you know, I've got, I, they got this other study and stuff that I do, and my small group's got this thing that we're studying, and when am I going to, when am I going to do this? Um, you know what, if you read McShane's, and by the way, McShane will take you through the Old Testament once, the New Testament twice, Psalms and Proverbs twice. So you're actually reading more than, you're reading the Bible more than just once. It's like 20 minutes. 20 minutes. And we may, we'll talk as we go along the year uh, that um, for some of you guys who maybe are just really deep studiers, I mean, you, you like your time in the Word every day is like maybe a few verses because you're just picking it apart and, and you love that. Um, you need to be trained to do something else also at another level with God's Word, and that is just read it and be okay with that. And understand that when you read four chapters... You can't read it like you just studied your four verses. And God doesn't expect you to do that. When, when, when people discovered new... Um, let me make this up in another way. If, if we had discovered new land that had never been discovered by any man on this planet, which would be more valuable? A man walking with a GPS device across that land, marking out things, or a plane flying at a higher level over the land. Which would be more helpful to get a sense of the of the land? Yeah, it, it, I'm trying to force you into a, a, a dichotomy that you shouldn't be allowed to be forced into. One is not more valuable. You need both of them. You need a guy walking on the ground surveying every pebble and looking at every landmark or whatever. And you want that. That's when you study God's Word. That's what you need. And if you've never flown over the whole thing, you don't know what the whole thing looks like. All you know is the five favorite books that you've read. 
And this is God's word. Guys, you need to be reading this book. You need to be mastered by this book. You need to be men of this book. Because this is where God reveals himself. And he didn't just reveal himself in those five favorite books or that favorite thing you're studying. He's, he's everywhere. And you've got to fly over it. And you've got to say, God, show me, show me who you are as I, I fly at 30,000 feet over God's word. So um, I want to encourage you that you need to pick one of those. Or if you want to find a different Bible reading plan, there's other ones out there. And I can even direct you to another one if you want after this. Um, I didn't include it this year, but um, I can give you another one. I want you, by the, by the first um, October 2nd, our next meeting, I'd like for you to commit to a Bible reading plan um, and start reading by October 1. You can start today if you want, um, but by October 1 is, is when we want you to, to start with a Bible reading plan, okay? And we'll talk about, we'll coach ourselves and we'll have, um, like, you know, uh, we'll have interventions on what happens when you fall off the, the Bible reading bandwagon and it's been seven days and you haven't read. Uh, don't worry, we'll, we'll coach you through that, and we'll have some um, prescriptions for you in the back. No prescriptions. Turn to the next tab, Discipline 2, the home. Same thing there, just some passages for you to look at, uh, a resource for you uh, to try to look at the Word of God and what the Word of God says about family relationships, household relationships, fathers and children, things like that. Uh, next tab, Discipline 3, the ministry. Same thing there. You can look at um, ministry categories, um, looking at at uh, like Samuel, the life of Samuel, and how his ministry was getting to the New Testament and whatnot. Qualifications section. You'll see deacons and elders passages to consider. Um, and for elders, I am not saying that uh, elders are found in Ezekiel 34. I'm saying shepherds are found in Ezekiel 34 and in the Old Testament. There's a big, the, the motif of shepherding is also, is obviously huge. Um, so that's a section to look at. And discipline five and discipline six at the end, are, there's probably nothing there for you now, but as you as you get your handout, like when I hand out to you that paperclip thing, it's on the heart, and so what you can do is you can just, you know, when, we, when you're all done, you can just put that in the, the heart category section. And uh, you'll fill this up as the year goes on. As you read stuff and as you, you know, come across chapters of the Bible or of other stuff you read, photocopy it, print stuff out from the Internet. Just slip it in here. Let this be a resource to you that you can take and you can use it for your family. You can use it for, you know, your ministry, whatever you are doing with whoever, a Bible study that you're, you're working through. Okay? Uh, what can you expect each time when you come on a Saturday? You can expect... First of all, that there will be coffee uh, and other stuff to drink. There will be light breakfast foods like that back there for you. Um, Cash will actually, I don't know if she's done it already, but she'll be sending out an email to either you or your wives um, or, or, um, and, and to see if, if you guys, if they want to help provide something now and then, um, uh, you know, bring some muffins in or whatever. So she'll uh, have some, something like that worked out. So you can count on that every time. Um, there will be a teaching every Saturday for at least an hour. Yeah, and it's very easy for me to do. So uh, maybe difficult for you, but that's why we say just get up, get down, make yourself comfortable, get some more coffee, whatever. But we're, there will be teaching for at least an hour. Um, you have the one ongoing assignment throughout the year, which is read through your Bible. You will have an assignment for each class that is handed out as well that you'll need to work on for the next two weeks before you come back. And then we will always save 45 minutes to an hour at the end for some small group time. Uh, we have each of you divided up into um, 
three or four, it's four small groups. Um, and so we have the guys who are going to be running small groups. Um, I will have a, a small group, and Eric's going to help me out with my small group. Tom Angstead um, is also a part of Build, but he is driving on his way to Boston with his wife for a wedding and won't be here. I'm not sure he'll even be back for the next one, but Tom Angstead is the other elder here, along with Scott Demarest, who will have a small group himself. And then um, Omri is going to be helping out with the group as well, uh, leading the small group. Um, so we'll have that. Today there will be no small group because of covering all of this stuff and, and whatnot. There's just plenty to do. Um, but you will have small groups next time. Now, with that said, do you guys have any questions or any comments, anything that you're heard? Or if any of you guys have been here in years past and, and you think it would be helpful to bring something out? Scott, do you have anything? Any questions? TJ. Great question. If you are already on a Bible reading plan, just stay on it. Don't change anything. I should have said that. Does that make sense, guys? Because you're doing already what um, we want you to be doing. So just stay right on your Bible reading plan. Don't disrupt it and pick another one. Just stay on it. So Great like, question. What, extra credit or something? If you wanted to know, yeah, it's extra credit. Don't count big. Big. Any other questions or comments? No? Great. Take a break. Go get some more food, drink, find the bathrooms, and uh, we'll start back up in about 10 minutes, five minutes or so, okay? Go ahead and um, take out your paperclip uh, section there, and you can just kind of set your notebook aside if you want. You don't need your notebook. It's time to take some notes and jump into God's Word. As we do that, um, I always like to pray before we look at God's word, before I get into God's word. Um, because what is at stake is, is so high and big and important. And God has revealed himself and he's revealed a whole bunch about you and me in this book too. And in particular our hearts. And the heart is the the place, if you will, or the ground that he will meet you at as either judge or savior. And so if we're going to be looking at God's word, it would be really good for us to um, make sure that our hearts are ready and soft and um, that we pray. So let's do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in this book. Thank you for putting it together in the way that you did over the many centuries through so many different authors, human authors. But what ties it all together is you because you are the one mind behind it and you have a plan to reveal yourself all the way through it. And we thank you for the great climactic revelation of yourself in Jesus Christ, the word become flesh, um, thank you for his death on the cross for us. Thank you that um, his blood is about bringing a new heart, one that um, is equipped with love for you and love for our neighbor, one that has the spirit 
your spirit residing within. Father, we are, are so grateful for what you have done and revealed through this, this book, our Bible. And we now as we open it, we, we want to meet with you. We want to see what we can discover about you. And we also want to understand the human heart better. And so we pray, Lord, that this would just be a time of worship of you and great um, encouragement to us. Pray that we would grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and your work through him. So be with my, my friends. Be with me. Make our hearts soft. Lead us and guide us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. What I want you to look at is you can take the uh, sample prayer, the example prayer, and just set that off to the side for a moment and just go right to your worksheet that says D1, the heart, a biblical survey of the heart. This is part one. We'll do part two next time. But I want to start off uh, by just talking about in generalities with you about the heart and particularly uh, number one, what is the heart? Let's talk about it from the Old Testament. You don't have to write all of these things down that I'm going to say. Write, look, listen for key things, and I'll try to zone you in on key things. But in the Old Testament, the word for heart is the Hebrew word leib or lebab. You don't need to write that down. But predominantly what's going on with that word is that word just means it's a way of referring to the whole man. One of the things that we need help with in probably correcting our view of the heart is thinking that it's a piece of me. And that is not the way the biblical writers use the word heart. It's not merely a piece of you like a hand. It is a way of referring to all that you are. And in the Old Testament, that is the way God uses the heart. It's, it's referring to the whole man. It is it is the seat of man's intellectual life, um, the inner nature of man. It's, it's the seat of feeling, emotions, joy, pain, tranquility. You'll see these words tied to the heart, a heart of joy. There was sadness of heart. You'll, you'll find that described that way in the Old Testament. It's also the, the seat of, of man's will. Um, Carefully weighed out intentions and plans of the heart. You'll read in the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament idea of heart is man with all of his urges. It's who you are as an urging being, as a man. It's the person in totality. It's a way of describing you, but using the heart. Okay, do you understand that? It's not a piece of you. It's not like... Your hand, it's, it's not like an organ in your body called the heart. It's you, gathered up, described in an inner nature kind of way, an inner man kind of way. And the whole idea uh, it, is that responsibility is tied to your heart, to you. So that whatever comes out of your heart is distinctively the property of your heart. And therefore, you're responsible for whatever it is that came out. Um, and for lack of a better way, I'm trying to think of a different word, but it's therefore then also the place, if you could talk about it as a place, 
It's the place where God meets man, either as judge or as savior. And in the Old Testament, it's the place where conversion takes place. Psalm 51, verse 10, David cries out for God to do what only God can do, and that is create a new heart. So there's kind of an Old Testament flavor of of the heart, and we're going to walk through the scriptures here in a moment. Let's talk about the New Testament use of the heart a little bit here in number one. Um, The same idea is carried on um, from the Old Testament into the New. The New Testament word is cardia. (coughs) Cardiac, arrest, that's where we get that word, cardia. Cardia translates the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, lev or lebab, most of the time. So there's a similarity going on in meaning between the two. Um, It's the center of your inner life, your personality. It's the place in which God reveals himself to man. Um, It's simply, again, the person. I'll give you an example. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 4. The exhortation to the the woman is the hidden person of the heart. You see, it's the person, but it's the hidden person of the heart. It's, it's, a, an, it's a way of describing you from an inner nature, inner man way, um, but it's you. It's not a piece of you, it's you. Okay? So the heart is that in man which is addressed by God in the New Testament. In the heart you'll see it's the seed of doubt, it's the seed of disbelief, but it's also the seed of belief and trust and obedience in the New Testament. Sometimes the heart and the mind are used um, in parallel, interchangeably, synonymously. Um, Let me give you a couple examples of that. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.14. Just jot it down. Three fourteen and fifteen. Second Corinthians three fourteen and fifteen. Paul says, But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. The mind is hardened, there's a veil that has not been lifted. Verse fifteen, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over there. You'd think he'd say mind. But he didn't say mind, he said heart. So you can see sometimes there can be a a way of describing who you are from the mind. But again, it's not a piece of you. It's you as a thinking being. Um, So uh, sometimes they are that way, used together. Um, And again, in the New Testament, the heart is the place where God deals with man. Um, That's the place where questions are decided for God or against God. Conversion in the New Testament takes place in the heart, and thus it is a matter of the whole man being converted. When you speak of the heart being converted, you're not talking about getting your hand washed, like a piece of you getting washed. You're talking about, no, the whole man was changed. The natural man has a stony heart, turned against God and his neighbor, and until God intervenes and gives a new heart, an obedient heart, nothing will change. So, How would we summarize this? If you want to write anything down, you can do this. The heart is another way of referring to who you are in all of your totality. It's who you are. 
And the heart is where God meets us either as judge or as savior. He comes and he evaluates the heart. You'll see this. Maybe I could say it this way. Have you ever been misunderstood? You said something and the and whoever you were talking to didn't get it. They 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 they, they thought you were saying something else or you realized that what you said wasn't really clear. Sometimes you'll hear us, we still believe this about the heart. We'll say, no, 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 no. If you only knew my heart. What are we saying? If you only knew this little piece of me that's tucked away. We don't mean that. We say, no, no, no. If I could describe myself at the heart, as a heart. uh, If you only knew that, then you'd really know what I meant. See? We still have this kind of idea and meaning today. So... The heart, another way of talking about it, your heart is the command central of who you are. Uh, Those of you who remember Star Trek and those of you who don't care, it doesn't matter. It is the bridge. Okay, it's it's command central. It's it's everything comes out of there. Thoughts, words, and attitudes, and deeds, and desires. Uh, Everything gets launched from there. It's it's an incubator. It it nurtures thoughts. Attitudes. Everything gets grown up there. It's the launching pad from which everything comes. And it's also the bullseye at which you kind of, you're after making sure your heart gets what your heart wants. Okay? Now let's talk about what is the condition of the human heart, number two. And now we'll start looking and we'll work our way through some passages. Let's look at Psalm 40, verse 11. Psalm 40, verse 11. What is the condition of the human heart? David says, you, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. Now watch this. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. What could be said about the human heart? Well, it's this. It is a heart that fails man. It's a heart that fails man. What man needs his heart to be and do most before God, the heart fails miserably at. The heart fails man. The heart forsakes man. The the heart you came into as in the world um, will will forsake you, has forsaken you already, that heart. And notice the the progression, what he says in verse 12. Evils beyond number have surrounded me. So he's talking about things outside of him. And then he talks about his own iniquities having overtaken him. And right there, the core of who he is as a heart has failed him. Okay? So what could be said about the heart? It is a heart that fails man. Let's um, look at Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. It's a rhetorical question which really needs no answer. 
the, the answer is obvious. Uh, no one can say this. No one can say, I cleanse my heart. I'm pure from my sin. You see, what can be said of the heart? It is a heart that is beyond man's cleansing. The heart is a heart that is beyond man's cleansing. The, the stain of sin and impurity is so powerful that man himself cannot purify it or cleanse it. And notice there are, there are no exceptions. Who can say this? The implied answer is no one. Let's jump to the New Testament, Matthew 15. Verses 18 to 20. Remember what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 15. He's talking about uh, the Pharisees and the scribes who are concerned that he breaks the tradition of the elders and he starts to confront them about their big, huge worship problem, which is a heart problem. And one of the key points of teaching there is in verses 18 to 20. Peter needed some help and the disciples needed some help with what he had told them. And, and he said, verse 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. These are the things which defile the man. Where did they come from? The heart. But to eat with unwashed hands? doesn't defile a man. So the heart here is the source of man's defilement. You've been defiled, and what you can blame is the heart. The heart you came into the world with and as. Go to Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul's great chapter and laying out of the righteousness of God says in verse 21, even though they knew God, sinful man, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So the heart is a foolish heart that invites actually greater spiritual darkness. The foolish heart was darkened. The foolishness of the heart opened it up to even more spiritual darkness. And do you need proof of that foolishness? It's right there at the beginning of verse 21. Even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. That is foolish. Even though we know something about God from creation, we have no intent to honor him as God. That's a foolish heart. So now, I want you to notice. Do you see that first second in, in number two there? Do you, do you see the way the verses are? Um, our, our first verse that we looked at, Psalm 40, and then we went to Proverbs, and then we went to a New Testament passage, and then we went to another New Testament passage. What I want you to watch on each one of these where we are able to do it, we're going to do that on every single section. Whenever we do a survey of what the Bible teaches about the heart, that's what this is. It's a survey. We're going to start in the Old Testament, and we're going to walk forward through the Bible to the back end. 
We're not going to read backwards from the end of the book into the first part. We're going to walk from the beginning and go all the way through. We're going to let each passage stand and speak on its own authority so that its meaning can be understood. And then we're going to try to summarize what we see there. So here we are. What is it? What is the condition of man? Well, um, it's a heart that fails him. It's a heart that is beyond man's ability himself to cleanse. It's the source of man's defilement. And it's a foolish heart that invites even greater spiritual darkness. That's the condition of heart. Number three, does the heart know this? Does the heart know its condition? Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy 11. <coughs> Watch this. This is, this is shocking. Look at verse 13 of Deuteronomy 11. <clears throat> Moses says, It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give you the rain for your land in its season and the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give you grass in your fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. I mean... This is going to be blessing, material, earthly blessing like you've never seen. It's going to be from God. It's going to be an amazing time in your life when you get to the promised land and God does what God does, what only he can do in this land when you're obedient to me. Okay? Time of huge blessing, right? Verse 16. Beware. Now, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. wait. When you are on at your wedding... And it is celebration, and it is the best day of your life yet. And there are people surrounding you, and it is great, and there is blessing, and there is, I mean, it is just favor all over you. You don't walk up to the groom or the bride and say, beware. <laughs> you don't. It doesn't seem to fit. God says it fits here. When blessing comes and Israel, when you get all of the good stuff I'm going to give you, beware. Why? Beware that your hearts are not deceived. That you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger, anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he'll shut up the heavens. There will be no rain on the ground. And it won't yield its fruit. And you'll perish quickly from the good land that the Lord is giving you. Is the heart alert to the nearness of its own devastation? Listen, the heart is... Easily deceived. Even when surrounded by the best. Listen guys, this is the heart that man is born with. This is who we are as we come into this world. Even when we are surrounded by the best, our hearts deceive us. That's what God says. Go to Jeremiah chapter 17. Very familiar passage. Right? On the heart. I'm sure you'll recognize it once we get there. Jeremiah 17, 9. Remember, we're asking ourselves the question, is the heart alert to this whole issue of what condition the heart is in? Does the heart even know what condition it's in? Well, first thing we notice in Deuteronomy 11 is that it's easily deceived. That's going to help us answer this question. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Again, the answer to that question is no one. Okay, so here's what 
Jeremiah is saying, or God is saying through Jeremiah, make a list of all of the things that you find deceitful in the world. Make a list. Scour the land and find all the deceivers, the things that are the most deceitful. And at the top of your list, you will have to write in your own heart. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Its sickness is beyond grasp. It is worse than you think. So get this. You're surrounded by blessing. You would think, ah, man, it's time to kick back, put my feet up. No, your heart can be deceived by even the blessing around you. And now we've just found out that your heart actually is a deceiver. The greatest deceiver of all. This is not good. Go to Romans chapter 16. Important passage tucked away at the end of Paul's great letter. Very, very important passage for the church to uh, not miss. Romans 16, verses 17 to 19. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. I tell you, dissension and division and hindrances in the church, contrary to the gospel, are not to be tolerated at all. Um, it's so dangerous. Verse 18, for such men are slaves. They're not slaves of our Lord Jesus Christ, but they're slaves of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. What does this tell us? Well, now, not only can your heart be deceived by blessing, not only is your heart a deceiver itself greater than all others, but now people can also come to you if you're naive and deceive your heart. Wow. Go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 26. Familiar with these verses as well. The heart is deceived by blessing. The heart itself is the most excellent deceiver, if you could use excellence that way. And the heart can be deceived by others. James 1.26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God. And Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Uh-oh. This man deceives his own heart. What does this say? We deceive our own hearts. Uh, to think yourself religious but then not have control over your words uh, is proof. It's evidence that um, you have deceived your own heart. This is, this is devastating. These are all deception kinds of language, uh, terms. The heart's deceived by blessing. The heart itself is a deceiver. The heart can be deceived by people. And we deceive our own hearts. How can the heart even be aware of its own condition? That it came into the world as? How? It can't. There's no way. Number four, 
What is the highest call of the human heart? Do you guys know this? Matthew 22. What is the highest call for the human heart? By God. Matthew 22, verse 36. What is the great commandment in the law? The lawyer said. Yeah, that's right. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of it, all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. There's a second like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Okay, so let me, let me get this straight, God, as I'm reading through your word and I see what you're revealing about the heart. I just want to make sure I understand this. My heart that failed me, Psalm 40, that is beyond my cleansing, Proverbs 20, that is the source of my defilement, Matthew 15, that foolishly invites greater spiritual darkness, Romans 1, and that heart that is easily deceived when surrounded by the best and is an excellent deceiver itself and can be uh, be deceived by others and me, that heart is supposed to love you with all of it, self, all of what it is, that heart is supposed to? And not in some partial, superficial way, but in totality, the heart, that one, is supposed to love you? Are you kidding me, God? God, do you know what you're saying? Do you know what you're asking of me? Don't you see what's that maybe maybe the problem is God hasn't seen the heart and he doesn't maybe he doesn't realize the condition it's in. Number five, does God see the whole predicament? Here we're not going to look at every one. Jump down to the third verse down there, first uh, Kings chapter eight. Go back to first Kings. 1 Kings 8 is where Solomon is dedicating the temple. It's been built. And this is a part of his prayer of dedication. Let's look at verses 37 to 40. 1 Kings 8, verse 37. He, in his prayer, he says, If there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, Whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to your fathers, to our fathers. You get it? Does God knows this? God definitely sees the heart. He says um, in verse uh, 39 there, um, it is you alone. There's nobody else who knows the heart. You alone, God, are the one who knows the heart. And not only do you know um, alone the heart of me, but of all of the sons of men, you know the heart. God sees this. Let's go back to Proverbs 24. Look at that one. So skip Psalm 44. I, I encourage you to go through yourself and, uh, you know, on your own later too. You can look at these um, passages on your own. 
Proverbs 24, verse... Um, I'll do verse 11. I'm not sure why I have verse 10 there. I think it's supposed to be verse 11. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to let it happen. But my excuse is going to be, I didn't see that. I didn't see it happen. I'm not responsible for what happened. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? You see, not only does God weigh the heart in his scales of evaluation, but he's weighing it, watch this, so that he can repay man. To render to man according to all of his works. So yeah, he's watching. He is the only one who can see it, and he knows every single heart of all of the sons of men, and he's weighing them because he's going to judge. Jeremiah, let's go back there. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. We'll add verse 10 this time. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. Again, verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And again, it's understood by us on a human level. No one. I can't understand it. You can't understand it. Oh, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Why does God search the heart? Why does he test? It is to give to, and the emphasis is on each man, according to his ways, according to his deeds. Listen, guys, there is no broad, general, impersonal kind of repayment that God gives back. He doesn't just grab a whole bunch of people and not really give much thought and throw them into the pit of hell, and there's judgment. No, it is to their faces, each one. I searched your heart. I alone knew it. And I repay you. Forever. And you, without distracting any of my attention away from you, you, I searched your heart. I'm the only one who knows it. I see it all. I've weighed it. And I render to you according to your deeds. Forever. And I'm not going to diminish any of my thoughts of judgment against you. And not you. And it is this way over and over and over and over and over since the garden, since the fall, he renders to each one according to his deeds. First Corinthians chapter 4. Paul has some helpful words for us. First Corinthians 4 verses 1 to 5. You know, Paul seemed to always have trouble with um, having to defend himself. And make sure that people understood what he was about and what he wasn't about. And so he's helping the Corinthians here. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You want to know how you should think of me? Think of me this way. I'm a servant or a slave of Christ. I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, 
It's a very small thing that I should be examined by, that I may be examined by you, or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. Now, that is not Paul saying, I never evaluate my life. I don't care about what I do. That, he's not saying that. He's got a better point, a bigger point he's making. He says in verse 4, For I am conscious of nothing against myself. He actually did evaluate himself, and he couldn't find anything there that he was looking for, that was a concern. Yet, I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Listen, Paul understands Scripture's trajectory on the heart. He does. He understands it. Just because Paul can't see anything doesn't mean he's in the clear. And just because you evaluated your heart doesn't mean, and you didn't find anything, doesn't mean that you're free and clear. God sees and he knows the heart. And you always have to remember that. He is the one who will disclose the motives of the heart. So, what's this question we're asking ourselves? We're asking ourselves, does God even see this, right? Um, Yeah, he sees it. He searches, he weighs the heart, he evaluates the heart, and he's even going to, um, he sees the the predicament completely, and all he can do is respond with repayment. He discloses the motives of that heart. So number six, what is the greatest need of the human heart? Is everybody doing okay temperature-wise? Does it feel like it's getting warm? Eric over there on the wall, just knock it down a couple. What is the greatest need of the human heart? We're going to take this in two parts. Part one, God calls man to do something about the heart. The point here that we're going to look at with these verses as we walk from the Old Testament into the New is that you are responsible. Man is responsible for the condition of his heart. You and I are culpable for our hearts. Let's go back to, uh, let's go to Jeremiah 4. Again, we won't look at all of these, but you can look at the ones that we don't cover today and build. You can look at them on your own. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. I used this passage when we um, when I taught on the heart a few weeks ago. Thus says the Lord in verse 3 to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And if mankind is what mankind is, and we are like these men of Jerusalem and Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, we are in need of the same kind of attention at the heart level. Circumcision is a significant surgical procedure. You can read about it in the Old Testament when men were circumcised and it took days for them to recover. Oftentimes they were taken advantage of and destroyed. It was a tactic that one of the sons of Jacob used. Significant. Um, thankfully, none of us remember it um, when we were little. <laughs> but what, what God is saying here is this is the radical removal of all that is wrong with the heart. That's what he's calling the men of Judah to. If they won't, there's judgment. Jump over to verse 14. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? The command is to them, do something about this. Wash your heart. 
and you'll be saved. Man is responsible here. The command is put into the lap of man to do something about this. Go to the next prophet, Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18, verse 30. God says in verse 30 of Ezekiel 18, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Make a new heart. Remember that? That's all that you are before God. It's a way of describing all of what you are. I have to make a, a whole new me? Is that what you're saying, God? God tells the house of Israel, that's exactly what you need to do. It's that bad. Let's go to Joel. Joel chapter 2. You know, you go after Daniel, then Hosea, Joel chapter 2, verse 12. <coughs> Joel 2, verse 12. The Lord says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend or tear your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. The motive given to do all of this is God, the kind of God that he is. But, but this is supposed to be, a, there should be a deep, deep grief. That goes beyond the surface of the clothes. You don't grab your, your garment and tear your garment in sadness. Somehow you need to grab your heart and do that. You need to grab what you are in terms of your heart and tear it. You should be grieved at heart. Tearing something superficial and partial like clothing, that doesn't even begin to touch the kind of grief that you should have. All that you are at the heart level needs to be torn, broken. Let's go to James chapter 4. James 4. Verse 8. chapter that starts off with some warnings and exhortations, admonitions about quarrels and conflicts. And part of that instruction that he gives, just firing out commands at them in verse 8, is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify? I thought Proverbs 29 said, uh, who can say I've cleansed my heart? I'm pure from my sin. And yet here we are commanded to do this. So God calls us 
to do something about our heart's condition. Here is the great news. Here is your only hope. That simultaneous to the command to do something about your heart, where God is accenting that you're culpable, responsible for your heart, simultaneous to that, he says in scripture that he is actually the one who will do it. Let's go to part two. God promises to do for man what man cannot do for his own heart. Go back to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. We'll look at verse 6. <clears throat> when, I, when I think about these passages, I, I, I try to first and foremost think of myself, obviously. I, I hope you'll do that too. But I, if, you, if you live with anybody... You need to be thinking this about them, too. You need to be thinking about people around you, that this is who we are as human beings. We, we have this heart, and there's a big problem. Big problem. I think about it in regards to my kids. And I think about it then as, uh, you know, I can't, even, I can't even begin to do for my own heart what my heart needs. How can, on earth could I do that for, you know, a couple 11-year-olds and an 8-year-old? I, I, can't, I can't do that. This is where you cling to what God says. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Listen, this is the Old Covenant, right? In Deuteronomy. The Old Covenant anticipated that a new heart was needed. It says so right here. And that God would actually be the one to provide it. The Old Covenant knew this. From its earliest days, the Old Covenant made Israel long for the day when God would do something with their hearts that the Old Covenant itself could not do. It's very interesting strategy what God did in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant highlighted the need for a new heart, but the Old Covenant did not itself provide the means to do it. You would need what? A new covenant. But that doesn't mean that the reality wasn't observed by the Old Covenant. Go to Psalm 51, verse 10. We, we talked about this. This is David's cry, right? Psalm 51, 10. He gets caught in his sin... Nine months later, ten months later, with Bathsheba, that sin with Bathsheba, and his cry is, Create in me, in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Drop down to verse 17. The sacrifices of God, you want to know what kind of sacrifices God is interested in? They're the sacrifices that are a, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. That's a heart that is created and made clean. David was an, uh, an, a believer under the Old Covenant. <clears throat> and he was very much aware in this situation that God revealed his sin to him. He was aware of God's evaluation of his own heart. He, he must have been aware that God needed and made some kind of a promise that something needed to happen with his heart that God could do. And so he cries out to God to do it for him. 
This is the way every Old Covenant believer should have worshipped God. Not all of them did, obviously. David felt the problem deeply. He felt his own inability here. He, He knew that he could not do for his heart what his heart needed. It was beyond him. So David cries out to you. I love this. This is a passage in in which the creator God and the redeemer God are united and brought together. Create. Creator God, will you you start again? But what you're primarily doing is a a work of redemption. I'm a sinner in need of cleansing and forgiveness. So he cries out to his redeemer creator to unite their... His powers as such, and to do something at the heart level. Go to Jeremiah 31. This is Jeremiah's great section on the new covenant. Made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He says in verse 33... But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they won't teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they all will know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The new covenant, its work and its focus will actually be the heart. It it, it will be able to do with the heart what the old covenant could not do. Hebrews 8 and 10 are the repeats of that. Go to Ezekiel 11, verse 19 and 20. Ezekiel 11. God addressing again inhabitants of Jerusalem and those who have been scattered, uh, deported. He said, and I, verse 19, will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. God is saying, I will take that stony heart out and I will do something about it. Go a few chapters to the right to Ezekiel 36. Look at one more Old Testament passage. Ezekiel 36, verses um, 26 and 27. He says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It just means softness, a heart that is soft. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I will give to your forefathers, that I gave to your forefathers, so that you will be my people and I will be your God. Great promises to Israel. But God is the one who will do it. Now, We know that when we get to the New Testament, you can start turning to Acts chapter 2, verse 36. We know that as we come to the New Testament, Jesus and his 
Passover meal with the disciples in Luke 22 says and, and does something with that Passover meal that not even Moses himself would have thought to do, would have dared to do. You don't take the elements, the, the food items at the table of the Passover and start saying, you know what, I know that you think this is bitter herbs that remind us when we fled from Egypt. I know that's what you think it is, but I'm going to change that for this meal. Anybody did that, they would have drug them outside and thrown them outside the city and buried them in a pile of rocks. Nobody does what Jesus did in that meal. He said, actually, this bread, it's actually me. And this cup, I know that you think of this little Passover lamb that was slaughtered, that made the angel of death pass over you and not judge you, but it's actually my blood. And it's the new covenant that's in my blood. So he grabs new covenant language, and he, we should begin to start thinking, on oh, new heart coming, new heart on the way. So you see this happen. Jesus dies. He, he sheds his blood on the cross. Um, he has ascended on high. He is now gone. Fifty days have passed by. You have Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches. And he finishes his sermon with these great words in verse 36. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And finally, for thousands of them, it sinks in. They finally get it. And when they heard this, verse 37, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what God would have loved to hear hear any believer or any sinner in the Old Testament say, God, what do we do? What do I do? I'm ready. My heart heart has, has been pierced. What do I do? Peter says, repent. The new covenant in Christ's blood has been inaugurated. And the Holy Spirit of promise is present in these disciples at Pentecost. And what happens at the heart level to those who hear? There is a heart piercing. It appears that the work of God that he promised at the heart level is beginning. Acts 15. Turn to Acts 15, verse 9. This is the council at Jerusalem. The Jews are trying to figure out who have, the Jews have believed in Messiah, Jesus, are trying to figure out what's going on with the Gentiles, right? They, they didn't have a, a category for what God was doing, even though they should have had a category for what God was doing. It wasn't that it was hidden completely. The mystery of the church was, but that God would be working with Gentiles? No, that was clear as day. Back up to verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us, believing Jews, and them, believing Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? Placing upon the necks of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. God's promise to Israel beyond the old covenant in the new covenant is actually including Gentiles. That was mysterious. 
They weren't expecting it quite like that. Go to, um, oh, we went, we've gone to all of them there, haven't we? So what do we see here in this whole section on God promising to do for man? Um, we are called to do something about the condition of our hearts. We are culpable. We are responsible. And the way the heart changes in man is when we plead our inability before God to do anything about it. And we trust God's promises in the new covenant for him to do with a new heart what we could never do for ourselves. Now there's one more section we've got to go through. And that is that God knows that in this whole process of what we've been walking through that we need some help. So number seven, lastly, what is God's provision for our hearts that need to change or that have been changed? Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll just look at a few of these. <coughs> Deuteronomy 6. This is the great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel. Right? The Lord our God is one. Hear, O Israel, verse 4. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So your heart and loving God you see, this is discipline one. This is everywhere. Your heart and God need to be in this love relationship. Your heart must love God. Now watch verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. God desires that his word and the human heart be in a full contact sport together. Because then love for God will take place. Go to Ezra, chapter 7. Remember, you've got to go through uh, your history portion. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Before Nehemiah, Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10. Ezra was a scribe. He had been deported. And he was coming back to Jerusalem. God was bringing the captives back after 70 years. And they came back in waves. And Ezra is coming back. And we are given a description here of Ezra in Ezra chapter 7. For Ezra had set his, what? Heart. To come into full contact with God's word. To study the law of the Lord. And to practice it. And then to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra knew that his heart had to be in full contact with God's word. Do you know that? Have you, could it be said of you, could this kind of language be picked up and used of you, that you set your heart to study God's word? <clears throat> Skip down to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse <clears throat> 11. Look at a few of these. Watch the emphasis on God's commandments, his testimonies, his statutes, his ordinances. Watch the connection between God's word and the heart and the mind of the psalmist. Verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart. And that brings about good things when it happens uh, that I might not sin against you. Verse 34. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Heart and God's law for 
This Old Testament believer had to be in contact with one another. Verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Take my heart and make it lean up to and against. Incline it. Direct it towards your testimonies, God. And not to dishonest gain. 111. Psalm 119, 111. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Can you say that about God's word? That God's word is the joy of your heart. 112. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes. You see, it is about your heart. It is about who you are at the heart level interacting with God's word. He has given your heart something that is very helpful. He's giving something to man, something very helpful. It is the word. We're making our way through to the New Testament. Go to, um, well, let me just remind you of Jeremiah 31. We're not going to turn there. But let me just remind you, God is the one in the New Covenant where he is actually going to write his what? Law on their what? Heart. So he is the one who's going to put the word, his word, his regulations into contact with a new heart in a way that had never been seen before. He is the one that's going to do that. Now go to Luke chapter 8. I love this one. This is... We went through Luke before we did um, Ephesians, and it was... Man, I, I have this default. Whenever I need to go to the Gospels, I, I, I always go to Luke, because I... So if it's not a Luke, I'm, I'm lost. I'm lost I love Luke. Watch this. Look at verse 9. His disciples began questioning him as to what the parable meant. Remember, this was the parable of the sower. Guy goes out and he's just throwing seed everywhere. Lands in stony places and it lands in you know, weeded places, rocky soil, and it lands in good soil. And so they asked him, what, what does this mean? And he said, verse 10, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that in seeing they may not see, and in hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Okay, that's a key component, what we're talking about. Those beside the road are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their what? Hearts. What was God's intent with the seed and the word that it was supposed to touch the heart? So that they will not believe and be saved. That's what happened when the devil did that. Those, verse 13, on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. And they believe for a while. And in a time of temptation, they fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. Now watch this. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. And they hold it fast, and they bear fruit with perseverance. That is what God is after. That is what Jesus Christ is after. That the word would be heard, and it would be, it would sink into the heart of who we are, the way of describing who we are at the heart level, and then it would be held too fast, strong. We wouldn't let go of it. We'd put a white-knuckled grip on it. The word of God must come into contact with the heart. Go to Luke chapter 24. Right. Yes? Um, yeah. Yeah, parables have two... It's a great question. 
Parables have two purposes. Um, one really severe, and one really merciful. And he has one vehicle, one means that accomplishes both. He tells a story. See, soil, a harvest. And in that story, the Spirit of God can work and reveal in that one story to some that God is saving, here's my gospel. And in that one story, all God has to do is just leave the rest to themselves as they are. And they see, and they don't see. And they hear it, but they don't get it. And God is glorified by both. Because man hears the word of the kingdom in Jesus as he's preaching it to them. And they, they respond. He unites their he unites faith to their hearts. And it's also a message of judgment to those who are already turned against him. So it's a twofold point that he's after. It's that they hear and Yes, it is, they see it and they reject it, and they hear it and they reject it. It's not just, well, I really wanted to know, but I, but I, I can't, I don't see it. You know, we already know now from what we looked at in the heart that the heart's not that kind of a heart. God, if I only understood, I would, I, w- I would follow you. It's not that kind of a heart. Yeah, well, that uh, and here I am to me, uh, but the end is what he's telling them, and tell them parables, tell them though. You're going to see and not see. You're going to hear and not hear. You think, you think Isaiah is going to go and tell him, repent and be baptized. That's the way Isaiah says. He tells Isaiah, go say, go tell the people, keep on listening, but don't perceive. Go tell them, keep looking, but don't get Yeah. And that's God saying that. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, that's hard. But it's, it's, uh, it's part of what God's doing. That's not what we always tell. Yeah, praise God that there are seasons and pockets and places where, man, you you speak the word and God is working and they receive the word and they receive it with joy. Um, praise God for that. Luke 24. Let's go to the end of the gospel. Jesus has been raised from the dead. His disciples are in dismay. They don't know what to think of what just happened. Three days after he was crucified and a couple of the disciples are walking along the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And in verse 32, you guys remember the story that they're walking along and somebody pulls up alongside them and, and they can't recognize who he is. And they say, now we got to read it. we got to go back to it. I, I can't summarize it. Verse 25. They finally get to the point where they just like, you know, some of us went out to the tomb. We, he wasn't there. Some women said this, and but, but you know, him they did not see. And he finally says, verse 25, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Your heart and the word through the prophets. These two things needed to come into contact, and your hearts have been foolish to not believe them. That's a problem. And we shouldn't be surprised at this point with what we've looked at to see those, that kind of a connection being made by Jesus. He says, was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? When he says to suffer these things, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about a sacrifice 
blood being shed? Wasn't it necessary for Messiah to be that sacrifice? So what is he preaching to them? The gospel. Your hearts didn't believe what the Old Testament prophets wrote. Let me preach the gospel to you. It's necessary. And so beginning with Moses and with seven out of 14 prophets, no, all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He went and he used the only Bible he could to preach the gospel and he used the Old Testament. So he's bringing the word of God to bear on their foolish hearts that missed it. Drop down to verse 32. You know, they, uh, they get to Emmaus, they sit down to eat, and all of a sudden, then they recognize him, and poof, he's gone. And immediately what they do is those two disciples get up and they run back to Jerusalem. But before they do that, they say, um, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning with it, within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? The heart is burning, the word of God is being spoken. See, these things are meant to be together. Your heart needs to burn when the gospel is near it. One more passage and we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 4. Turn there with me. It's an amazing context, Hebrews 4, about salvation, rest. And we're actually doing exposition of this in a few weeks, or in a few uh, lessons. On October 16th, we'll, we'll do this in context. We'll kind of walk through what's going on in Hebrews 3 and 4, but for tonight or for today, just verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Wow. This is what we're after, guys, with build is that you would understand the condition of your heart before God, that you, what you were like when you came into the world, that Lord willing, he has done the work of the new covenant in you and giving you a new heart, that only Christ can give through his blood, and that God has a companion for your heart that your heart desperately needs, and it's the word of God, and it's the gospel in particular. And that you would understand that those two things are to be together all of the time. So when you read the Bible, you are a man that is thinking, my heart must engage with God in his word. And in particular with the gospel. His sons shed blood who suffered. Messiah who suffered. So that I can be what I am in Christ. So that I can accomplish what he has for me. So if all of this is true, if all of this is true, the, the old heart is a dismal failure, stained, it's defiled, it's foolish, it's deceived, it's self-deceived, it's the greatest deceiver itself, and it's completely unaware of its condition. And the calling from God is, is so high to love him with all of that. The Son of God, Messiah, came and he stepped in the middle to bear away in his body, in his death, by shedding his blood. He he bore away that old heart of rebellion against God in order to give a new heart. And then God gives his word to be a companion to your heart. What should be your attitude? What should be your thought as a man of God? Um, I'm going to read my Bible two days a week. 
And if I don't read it this week, you know, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll try. I'll, I'll get to it next week. Are you kidding me? You cannot be that kind of man. You cannot be that kind of man. If you know this from henceforth, as some of my friends have said, you put the stake in the ground and you go forward. You are not going to be that kind of man anymore. You are going to expose your heart to God in his word and his work through his son on the cross all the time, whenever you can. You must be that kind of man. Your wife needs you to be that kind of man. Your children need you to be that kind of man. Your roommates need to live with a guy like that. The church called Grace Bible Church needs a whole slew of men like that. Or this church has nothing to offer. It has nobody who can lead it. Do you understand? You get this and anything that's put after you. If it's a small insignificant ministry that only three people for the rest of the 40 years of your life will see, it counts. And it matters. And it's full. And God is in you. And God is working in you and through you. If you skip over this and you get a huge platform of ministry to people, it doesn't matter what it is because you're a hollow man and God knows it. Guys, you need to shepherd your heart to God in his word. You need to be this kind of man for your own sake. But God has called men to something unique in their homes and in in the church. Your home and and your church needs you to to listen to God and to respond. And this is what we want to unite ourselves around together. This is what we want to fellowship with together. And I want to see what God's going to do with Grace Bible Church with men like that. He's the one who gets to choose what it looks like. We have no aspirations for big platform ministries, but we want to see the gospel go forward. And it needs to go forward with men like this in the church, leading, serving, shepherding. Let's pray. And then if you guys have questions, we can talk a little bit. Okay? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is, this is sobering and it is exciting, Lord, and to have my heart be exposed to this again this morning, Lord. It uh, makes me feel my, my need for you. I hope it makes my friends here feel their need for you too. God, we do need you. We are paralyzed. Um, in and of ourselves, we have no ability to come to you while we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We, we weren't looking for you. We weren't finding you. We, we were hopeless, helpless. But you are a God of great compassion. You are abundant in loving kindness. Your faithfulness is stunning. And you come and you open the eyes of dead sinners to see your son's work on the cross. And we believe. We repent. And now, God, um, I pray, Lord, that if there's any man here in a group this size that that has not happened yet, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that this man would be truthful and honest with you at the heart level, knowing what you see and what you weigh and that you will repay. 
Help them to see that you paid your son in full the wrath on the cross. And open their eyes. Grant them that precious gift of repentance. And Father, for those of us who have the new heart, and we are a new creature in Christ, we are a new men. Father, you have given to us a companion that we must have so that we can continue to evaluate ourselves at the inner man level. All that we are in the heart and mind needs to be filtered through and evaluated through the word of God, the gospel of your son. Turn us into men who are disciplined to shepherd our hearts to your word consistently. Father, I pray that where there might be some discouragement this morning, Lord, because we we all are not what we should be, I pray, Lord, that you would bring encouragement to, that you would admonish us where we need to be admonished, but then that you would also sustain us with hope that we would see a new day before us and that by your spirit, God, we would become men who love your word. And we love your word because we love you and your word reveals you. We're after you, God, and you've given us your word. Thank you for our time together, Lord. Thank you for these men and their sacrifice to come and be here. Pray, Lord, that you would bear much fruit from this for your sake and for ours too. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, it's about just about five till. Do you guys have any questions or comments or anything about today? Or build? Oh, your homework. Thank you, Holly. Oh, yeah, there's homework. Yeah, I know you do. All right, take a look at the yellow sheet. Your homework will always be a colored sheet. Uh, just so that it stands out. This is due Saturday, October 2nd. Uh, our next meeting. Just some questions for you to think through. I want you to write these out. Uh, you can, uh, if you want to do it electronically, that's fine. You can do that if you want to just write it in here and turn it in. That's fine too. What are your current daily or weekly habits of shepherding your heart into greater love for God with His Word? Guys, be honest. Don't don't answer what you think you know you should write now on the basis of what you've heard. Just tell us like it is. Okay? Just be honest. Say this is what my habits been, good or bad. What is your mind on when you open God's word? What do you hope to accomplish when you read? You know, I'll tell you guys, I'll be honest with you. When I open the Bible in the morning and I start to read, I oftentimes have to catch myself a few verses in and I'm like, I haven't even prayed. And and, and so I need to come back and I need to stop and I need to, to talk to God about, okay, why am I here? There's a, I forget who, is it Matthew Henry? who said, when you come to God's word, you need to have an answer to this question. Why are you here? What brings you here this morning? If God were going to sit with you and you open up your Bible and he said, what brings you here? You need a good answer for that question. And it's all about discipline. My heart needs you, God. What uh, What part does prayer currently play in the reading? What throughout the day quenches or hinders your love for God? What habits undo your attempts to shepherd your heart? nearer to God with his word? How will you plan to bring these habits to an end? What habits um, help you express and even promote your love for God? I'll tell you what, I had lunch yesterday with a brother, and I tell you, we were so excited about what we were talking about in Christ, I thought, that was exactly what I needed in the middle of my day, that kind of fellowship, talking about the word of God together. Um, It was great. Just give some answers to those, that will help you... uh, 
evaluate yourself a little bit and give us a sense also. Um, I gave to you, I thought, I've been thinking over the last year as, as I get ready for Build to Start, how could I help the guys see what these disciplines look like? How do they flesh themselves out, maybe in a, in a spiritual way, as a, as a prayer even? And so what I did is, um, this is weak, this is shallow, this isn't what it, it, it could be or should be. But this is what the kind of thing that goes through my mind when I think about discipline one, the heart, and then the home and, and ministry. And this is the kind of thing that I, I think we want to try to express as we read. And I'll let you guys maybe take a look at that, put it in your Bible, use these words if you want, come up with much better words if you can, and um, try to reflect something of this in your prayer as you're opening God's word, okay? That prayer is just there to help you. All right. That's it. It's 9 o'clock. You guys are free to go if you like. Thank you so much for coming. Make sure there's no food left, no drink left. And uh, we'll see you, Lord willing, tomorrow. Okay? Thanks for coming.